Hello, and welcome to the Living Cruelty Free With Me podcast. My name is Claire, and I'm the creator of the blog and social media platform, Cruelty Free With Me, where my goal is to show everyone how easy it is to live a life free from harm. Now, I do this by promoting an ethical vegan lifestyle. Whether you're looking to transition into a vegan lifestyle or just looking to make some kind and conscious decisions, this podcast is for you. Together, we will change the world by spreading awareness and inspiring change. Please stay updated by following at Living Cruelty Free with me on both Facebook and Instagram. And do not forget to hit that subscribe button to get notifications on upcoming episodes. I am beyond excited about today's guest. We have Jay Conroy, aka the Cranky Vegan, joining us. He is always rethinking the strategies and tactics of the grassroots animal rights movement. He was featured in the Animal People documentary and also in What the Health. Please give a warm welcome to Jake. Why um why the Cranky Vegan? What inspired the name? Was there like a <laughs> moment behind that or no, I mean, honestly, like, I don't really have any aha moments. People are like, oh, how did you go vegan? I was like, I don't have an aha vegan moment. I don't know. I'm, really? I guess I'm kind, of, kind of boring in that regards. But when it came to the cranky vegan, um, I originally wanted to do a podcast called My Friends Do the Coolest Shit, where I just wanted to interview my friends who I think did do or did cool shit and yeah. hear their stories and, and learn from them. And, and, um, and then I realized I don't ever listen to podcasts no offense yeah. um, and I don't, I don't know anything about them like I could literally name uh 10 episodes of podcasts that I've listened to in my entire life and so I'm like why do I want to do this so I thought well I really enjoy video I really love editing and so I'll just do YouTube YouTube was a platform I didn't know much about and I just was like well I want to learn something new and yeah so I just did it um and I actually did it for about a year and a half not calling it the cranky vegan and no one not not a lot of people paid attention to it and then I took a break for like six or seven months and I came back and I was like, I should just rebrand this thing with the word vegan <laughs> in it and maybe it'll get more attention. And it did. Well, not that's that good. Like, yeah. I mean, not that it's like a huge thing or anything, but it definitely gets more attention than it was, you yeah. know, than it did in the past. Which, well, I, I love know. your, I love your videos and I love the three minute Thursdays. They're always so informative. And if anyone's oh, listening you. and you don't know what it is, you need to go watch them. Um, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. I noticed you actually put one up today and I haven't even had a chance to watch it, but it was about Veganuary. Um, it was. Yeah. So since I haven't even gotten a chance to look at it um, or listen to it, what was the kind of conclusion of that video? Do you support it? Do you think it's good for the movement or what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I generally... Um... I mean, just to give a little more context, you know, my YouTube channel is is basically me questioning and and, and rethinking the strategies mm-hmm. and tactics of the grassroots animal rights movement. And so for me, I'm really interested in what the grassroots movement does and, and how I think we can do it better. Not yeah. that I necessarily know how to do it better, but I think if we ask the right questions together, we can come up with the right answers. And so sure. part of that is me questioning things like, educational outreach campaigns, educational outreach organizations, and things like Veganuary that I, I'm not really sure make that much of a difference. I think it right. makes a difference. So I think there's value in it, but I don't think it's enough of a difference where I, I think we should be investing literally millions of dollars into making it happen. Um, I, have, yeah, I haven't that's been a huge number. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. With that um, being said, then, um, would you say that 
being vegan isn't really enough then? Um, in this, again, this is where I think it gets a little tricky because I, I want everyone to be vegan. I want the world mm-hmm. to be vegan. I think it's, it's important that we eat our ethics and that we, you know, our, our ethics are reflected in the way we live our lives. That being said, I don't think people just eating a plant-based diet is going to change the world. I, I, yeah. I just don't think that's the reality of it. And I think until people like a understand what veganism is, meaning it's a philosophy and it's an ideology around animal liberation, as opposed to just a plant-based diet, which is a part of veganism. Um, I think the more vegans, actual vegans that we have that are, and and are also activists for animals. um, I think that's when we start making important changes for, for animals um, through a grassroots movement. No, I totally agree with that. I know you said you didn't really have like a, aha moment but when did you go vegan um i also can never remember the date (laughs) (laughs) it was either 1995 or 1996 and i always um remember it by the first time i was arrested which was in november of 1996 so i'm like i must have been vegan before that so (laughs) yeah i i would assume so but yeah i i like to think it was 95 and then i became more active in, um, in like early 1996 and guess. there wasn't really like anything that happened that made you ins- like inspired you to make the switch or I mean I could tell you a handful of stories and it, one yeah. of them would sound good but yeah <laughs> but I for me like the general the general sense for me was that like I think from a very young age I was interested in pol- not politics but you know like um, organizing and and struggle and fighting back and you know, my mom was, you know, fought against the Vietnam War in the 60s. Oh, wow. and, 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 and so I think I was probably just instilled from an early age with that idea of like doing what's right as opposed to what's easy. Mm-hmm. And so I was really interested, like in elementary school, um, in, in the civil rights movement. And I grew up in a, you know, in the Northeast of the United States, where it's predominantly white and middle and upper class. And so learning about the civil rights movement meant learning about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks which was great, but it's just one story of the broader tale. And so I actually really got interested in politics um, and more radical politics through music. Um, Okay. Yeah. So again, in elementary school, so this was like, you know, 86, 87, I got really interested in hip hop. So I listened to things like Grandmaster Melly Mel and Grandmaster Flash and NWA. um, And, and that was very politicizing and, and, I think it was 1988 or 89 public enemy put out their album fear of a black planet. And I remember getting that album. It just kind of blew my mind that, uh, you know, they're talking about the black Panther party. They're talking about Malcolm X. They're talking about black power uh, and black liberation. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, there's this whole other world of activism and, and protesting outside of this prescribed notion of nonviolent resistance, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And, and again, this is all truncated into like the mind of like, you know, a 13 year old. It wasn't that wow. in depth, but, you know, but on a very general that's, sense. That's pretty like, crazy, oh, though, to be like to think that at that young and like to be exposed to that. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I agree. And and I as I got a little bit older, you know, 15, 16, I got interested in hardcore and punk rock, and you know, this do it yourself community and philosophy around music and life and and eventually when I was 18 I moved across the country to Seattle Washington um, in in 1995 
the Northwest was a hotbed for activism, particularly radical activism. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was a mixture of like the hardcore punk rock community was very um, entrenched in the animal rights movement. Every, a lot of people were vegan, a lot of people were activists. Um, so there's a combination of that and a combination of the Northwest that just said like, A, I knew I wanted to be vegan. So I walked into a Burger King and I had a double bacon cheeseburger with mushrooms and, and had a large fry and a chocolate milkshake and I ate it and I was like, all right, this is the last, my, last you know, quote unquote, my last meal. And then the next day I just went vegan. And then from there, I was like, I knew I have to be vegan. Or I'm sorry, veganism wasn't enough. I needed to be an activist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a whole nother story of finding about activism in, in, in Seattle and getting more involved. So what was like the first experience with activism out in Seattle then? What was your first like memorable yeah. action? I was walking to school um, at that time. I, I went to school in downtown Seattle. I was walking to school at the time, Ringling Brothers Circus marched the elephants from the train station that's in South C Seattle along, wow. I think, First Street or Second Street, the whole way to the arena. And it was like this big thing. And I remember walking to school and there was a group of people protesting it. And I walked by it. And in my head, I'm like, Jake, why, you know, that's what you want to be doing, like turn around and go talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm a bit of an introvert. So the idea of like doing that was difficult. So, you know, but I did, I went back and I talked to this guy who I eventually became friends with named Wayne is an older guy. And, and he, I said, what are you doing? And he says, Oh, we're protesting the elephants in the circus. And I said, well, how do I get involved? And he said, well, um, we're in the yellow pages and probably people don't remember what the yellow pages are because I'm old. But, <laughs> I remember. You know, <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, he's, it's, you know, you get the, the 700 page book yeah. of like every phone number in the world or whatever, but he's like, Oh, we're in the yellow pages. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. So after school, I went, you know, to the yellow pages and sure enough, it, it, there was a, an animal rights organization section. And the only one listed was the Northwest animal rights network. Um, and I was like, well, that was easy. It's just in the yellow pages. That was stupid. I didn't easy. think of that earlier. <laughs> and then uh, I went down and protested the circus for the weekend and then just jumped right into it um, and got really involved with that organization for several years um, and, and just kind of went from there. Interesting. That's crazy. The Ringling Brothers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is a lot's changed since then. <laughs> yeah. A lot has changed. I mean, from the time you went vegan to now, I'm sure. I mean, even six years ago when I first went vegan, so much has changed. So I can't even imagine the, yeah. the change that you've seen. It's hard. I mean, yeah. I mean, think about learning about veganism without using the internet, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It was for me, I carried around a little, you know, I didn't know any other vegans. And so I carried around this little photocopied list of like 20 or 30 animal ingredients. And every time I went to the store and I would just walk to the store with this dirty oh photocopied paper that lived, lived in my backpack. And I remember, I look back at it now and I'm like, some of the things on there were so intense. Like it was like uh, fragrance. You, you couldn't have anything with fragrance because according to this list, yeah. because some fragrance came from minks on mink farms. And so uh, oh, that's... whether or not that's tr true, I'm not entirely sure. But yeah. I've, I've, never, said, I've so. never heard that. Yeah. But back then, you know, yeah. there was all sorts of things. You, you weren't supposed to eat Heinz ketchup because the natural ingredient was ox blood, which obviously wasn't true. But, you know, there's oh, no real way of like checking that. So, so it was like, it, you didn't yeah. eat ketchup. It's, you know, it was intense. I mean, you didn't some, go to the movie there's so many weird ingredients. Of, yeah. Sorry, what about the movie yeah. theaters? 
oh, we didn't, you know, a lot of people didn't go to the movies because the film, it wasn't digital. It was, you know, it's film. So it had gelatin in it. So you you didn't go to the movie theaters. Like it was was a weird time. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, on a positive note, a lot of things have changed in that are good for vegans. Um, For sure. So that's, that is one positive, I guess. Um, Yes. No complaints. Yeah. Now, obviously, I want to talk to you about like the Shaq campaign and the reason you ended up in jail. And I and I was wondering to myself, I'm like, do you get sick of talking about the past? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a conversation I have with myself. Quite yeah, um, I think I, would imagine I think so. there's important. Yeah, I, I think there's important lessons there for sure, mm-hmm. both good and bad. Right. And so and I think it's really important to learn from the history of our movement and other movements. And that's yeah. why. I still, you know, make an effort and a point to like, if I have questions or thoughts, I run them by people that have been doing this way longer than I have. Right. Like, what do you think? Um, not that, you know, they might not necessarily have the answers either, but I do think it's important to learn that way. Yeah. Um, so that being said, I'm happy to talk about it if people want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to, to just that. like briefly chat about it. I'm, I think it's crazy that so many activists are labeled as terrorists. It's a word that I also have been called at one point. Um, And I just, Mm -hmm. it's so hard to wrap my head around. Um, And for anyone that doesn't really know the history, you and six others, correct me if I'm wrong, were found guilty in 2006 for um, campaigning against this animal testing lab called Huntington Life Sciences, correct? Correct. Yeah. And you spent how long in jail because of that? Um, I was sentenced to four years. And so I did 37 months in prison and I did six months in a halfway house, which was like a transitional house, Um, you know, from where you're supposed to quote unquote transition from prison into real life. It's basically just you're living out of prison in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, I was in three years of probation after that. Wow. That is just crazy. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe you could just briefly summarize kind of what the Shaw campaign was about. No. Sure. Um, the Shaq campaign, Shaq stands for stop Huntington animal cruelty. It was a grassroots kind of no nonsense campaign to shut down a laboratory called Huntington life sciences. Um, it was a campaign that was, um, kind of horizontally um, organized, meaning there wasn't really like a hierarchy of leaders or people saying you need to do this or you need to do that. It was more that anyone could participate in any way that they wanted. And some of those tactics and ideas were things that we didn't necessarily agree with, but we would support you in doing them um, as long as, you know, they were nonviolent in nature. Mm -hmm. And so Shaq, we were the U.S. chapter, so we were Shaq USA. Um, we had our own blueprint and our own ideas of how we thought we could shut down this lab and we encouraged people to follow them. Um, but again, if they wanted to do something different, we would support that. And so we did research into the laboratory and everyone associated with it. Um, we did newsletters, leaflets, videos. We organized uh, local, regional and national demonstrations um, and just kind of spearheaded the campaign as best we could. But again, very horizontally organized. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to go after not just the lab, but go after it, go after um, secondary and tertiary targets. Meaning instead of protesting against the lab, you protest against everything a lab needs to stay open. So they need a bank account, they need insurance, they need an auditor, they need internet providers, they need toilet paper in their bathrooms and food in the cafeteria. And so all those people then could be 
the subject of protest. And the idea was if you could get the bank to no longer give them a bank account or the internet to no longer provide them with an internet connection or insurance to provide them with insurance insurance to run their facilities, they would have to spend a lot of time replacing those contracts or finding new companies. Um, and the more you could get to, to leave the lab, the more we felt that you could shut the place down. And it worked really well. You know, yeah. it was, it's a publicly, it was a publicly traded company. It was, the share price was about 30 us dollars at the beginning of the campaign. And after a few years, the share price was only worth two or three pennies. And we got, you know, a hun- over a hundred of the largest corporations in the world to stop doing business with, with this lab. That's so incredible. It was, it was wildly successful. Yeah. Yeah. That's the very short version. <laughs> if you're interested in diving into the whole, you know, campaign and the subsequent legal battle, there's a, a great documentary called The Animal People that was uh, produced by Joaquin Phoenix. And you can watch that on Netflix and, and other places on the internet if you're so inclined. Yeah, great documentary. Really great job. So how yeah. did you, in short, how did you go from activist to labeled as a terrorist? And how did you end up in jail? Yeah, so um, there's a law in the United States called the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, and it says that if you cross state lines to disrupt a business that uses animals um, and do more than $10,000 worth of physical damage, um, then they can essentially try you as a domestic terrorist. And so uh, the law was created to, to try and stop people like the Animal Liberation Front who are driving around the country, breaking into fur farms and laboratories, doing physical damage, and then, you know, escaping um what they said in our case was that we crossed state lines using the internet because this campaign took place from 2001 to 2006 in the united states so internet and, and organizing in the internet was something that was very new and um so they said we crossed state lines by encouraging and organizing through the internet um, and we did more than ten thousand dollars worth of economic damage because we reduced their share price by so much and therefore, we should be found guilty. Wow. Of this, okay, I did this, not know that uh, part. Charge. Yeah. Huh. So they they arrested six of us and the organization for the seventh uh, entity who made it the Shack Seven, um, and we were all charged with different um, different you know so called mm-hmm. crimes. Um, but the myself, Kevin, and Lauren, they said that we were the national ringleaders or leaders of Shack USA, and therefore you know we had six charges. Josh had two and, and Andy and Darius, I think, had one or Andy had two and, and Darius had one. Um, but we were all charged under that Animal Enterprise Protection Act. Uh, um, yeah. And we took it to trial and we were found guilty. And, you know, they sentenced us based on how they thought we were, you know, the, in this hierarchy of leadership within the organization. So is everyone out now and everyone's free or what is the status on that? Yeah, everyone is yeah. out. Everyone um, is off probation um, and has gone on to the next steps in their lives. So, yeah, is everyone kind of still involved in animal activism? Um, I think people are involved in activism in various different ways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some some are, you know, work in the law. Some work in rescue. Some do, um, um, like... um, documentation of the history of the animal rights movement others make irritating videos on youtube <laughs> um, we're all we're all doing different well, that's things, good yeah. that's great if you if you yeah. could go back 
would you have to, would you change anything? Would you do it again or? I think in the broader sense, I would do it again. I think there are definitely little mistakes that we made along the way that, that ended up hurting yeah. us. Um, but I think that's the nature of trying new things, right? right? Like what we were doing had never been done before in the animal rights movement really and elsewhere. Um, we had taken a lot of our general inspiration from the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in the 80s, where they encouraged people around the world to protest against apartheid by going after the banks. Hmm. And it worked really well. And so um, the original people that started this campaign, the Shack campaign in England, used that as a model. Um, and we you know, learned from them and, and, and took inspiration from them. Um, but it really had not been done before. And so we were in new territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying new things. And sometimes things worked, sometimes, sometimes things didn't work, failures, successes. And I think like learning from those are super important. Um, so yeah, we definitely made mistakes. And if I could go back, I'd do those things differently. But I think if the question is, mm-hmm. would I not do Shaq? Then, then I would definitely do Shaq again. I think it was, it was inspiring. It was exciting. Um, and, and we put a really big dent in the, the dissection industry. Well, that's good um what yeah. was jail like are there vegan options in jail <laughs> yeah that's a, like an i could talk about oh that forever oh my gosh I, that, I i would love to know <laughs> so in the united states there's different types of incarceration so there's jail which is generally like county jails right you know you might spend a couple of days there there's state state prisons where if you break a state law you go there and then there's federal prisons, and that's where you go if you've committed federal crimes, which they accused us of doing, and we found us found us guilty of a variety of federal mm-hmm. crimes. So I was in a federal which prison, is the, probably um, the worst one to end up in, right? Depending on where you are, yeah. yeah. I mean, the state prison systems are pretty pretty brutal, particularly like California state prison systems are pretty awful. I mean, any incarceration For is awful, sure. but um, California state prison is is particularly bad, as well as some others. Um, so yeah, I, there, there are some places in the federal system that, um, I would not want to go to. And if I had to go to prison, there are other places I would prefer. To yeah. <laughs> but the, when it comes to vegan food, um, you, they are not required to, um, give you vegan food. They are required to provide you with a no meat option at every meal in the cafeteria. Okay. Um, but the no meat meals are generally like a cheese sandwich or like, texture vegetable protein and some like nasty gray gravy oh. that even if you were vegetarian or an omnivore you would definitely not want to eat um it was brutal it was nasty oh my gosh um, there's also there's also um a commissary so there's like a prison store that's you know operated by the bureau of prisons and you can buy things from there if you have money um so you in terms of vegan food i could get like re- like dehydrated rice i could get dehydrated beans um, tortillas, flour tortillas. Um, for a little bit, I could get granola. Um, so a lot of tacos. That's pretty much it. Soda. Yeah, I ate more burritos than I ever <laughs> wanted to eat again in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would not want to but eat the that again either. Yeah, I, I mean, I seriously probably ate burritos seven or eight times a wow. week. Like it, was, it was pretty wild. But um, the interesting piece about it, though, is that it, there's a black market to prison, right? So anything you can think of, can find. You, if you have the currency, which are postage stamps in prison, it used to be cigarettes, you know, like you see in the movies, but the federal system outlawed cigarettes. So it turned into postage stamps. So a postage stamp when I was in was worth about 25 cents. Hmm. And so if you had postage stamps or you could 
buy postage stamps from the store, um, the commissary, you could then buy things on the black market. And so people would, you know, they would buy alcohol, they would buy tobacco, they would buy drugs, they would gamble. I would buy tofu, <laughs> texture vegetable protein, vegetables, fruit. Just dealing, and you're dealing not allowed to have that stuff. in prison. That is too good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there, you're not allowed to have any of that food in your cell. So, like, if they see it, then technically you're in violation, right? And so, like, you know, they're always on the lookout because people love to like steal the the raw chicken and shit, and then like sell it. And those were like the big money. Sell makers. raw chicken. So when I was like, yeah yeah that was like the big thing it was it was awful it was gross and then people would cook it in the microwaves wow and so for me i'd pay my buddy like three stamps and he'd take a carrot because he was the head chef or the head cook in the in the um in the cafeteria and he'd put like a carrot or a pepper down his pants and he'd walk (laughs) past the security guards he'd pat him down and then he'd walk it back into the unit and they'd pat him down again and they would miss it and then he would walk up to my cell he'd pull this carrot out of his pants I'd pay him three stamps. I'd wash the carrot for like 10 minutes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is too good. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. Wow. It's funny though. My buddy Dave, he was kind of a big guy. So he could kind of, he could hide a lot. So he, and he was kind of well-respected because he was the head yeah. cook. And he used to steal me these like five pound bags of textured vegetable protein. And that's what I, I survived off of really in terms of protein. But he would take these like, you know, he'd fill like a five pound bag or a bread bag full of textured vegetable protein. He'd like kind of stuff it under his stomach <laughs> or on his belt line. And one time he got caught with it. And I mean, if you, you know, a dried TV yeah. looks like it's like rocks yeah, yeah. essentially. And he, he like this cop patted him down and they found it and they pulled it out thinking it was drugs be some or like something. High ticket item like oh. raw chicken or drugs or something. And, and the cop's like, what is this? He's like, yeah, it's textured vegetable protein. And the cop's like, what? <laughs> He's like, oh, it's for a vegan. It's for a vegan in my in my unit. And he's like, all right. And he just gave it back to him. He's like, no one wants that garbage. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So the cop would just let him steal the TVP. Well, that's care. good. That's a bonus. And I bet you probably got yeah. so many questions about why you were there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, what did yeah, people sure. have to say about that? Um. It was tricky because in the prison, I was in two prisons, but the first one I was in was called Victorville. It's a a medium security prison in the Mojave Desert near Los Angeles, a couple hours outside of Los Angeles. There was a lot of high member, like high profile or high member um, gang members or high level gang members from like the greater Los Angeles area. There's like um, mob guys, there's like um, rapists, murderers, drug dealers, bank robbers, things like that. And I'm like this like little like, you know, kid that's in for animal yeah. stuff. And they're like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and and the thing with prison, you know, again, this is because every prison's different, but my experience in the prison I was in, if you are different or you stick out or people don't understand who you are or what you're in for, then you are mm-hmm. a target. Like people extort you for money, they'll extort you to buy them stuff at the commissary, um, or they'll just beat the holy hell out of you um and or do all of those yeah and so you kind of have to figure out how to carry yourself really quickly or it gets really dangerous really quick and so as someone that looked very out of place and had a very strange story and i was the outcast like i was looked at yeah i can imagine and so it yeah i mean it was pretty dangerous for uh, a number of months before i could finally like get my bearings together and and um 
and and like get a little understanding and respect from other inmates but yeah I was told when I went in like as from another inmate that had been doing time another political prisoner I was writing him being like hey can you give me any tips and he basically said you need like an elevator pitch for your case you have to be able to tell your case in 30 seconds otherwise people lose interest and so I was like (laughs) okay so people come in they they first thing they say hey where where you come from meaning what prison did you come from and i would say why i self-surrendered which first thing is like no one does so it's like okay this is a weirdo what is that story and then you give this what is no like you say self-surrender yeah i'm sorry i'm kind of like no weeds here so like you either when you're found guilty you're either taken straight to prison or you're um you're allowed to be put on house arrest until they figure out which prison you're going to go to and then it's up to you to turn yourself in. And so they allowed us gotcha. to do that. So before I went to prison, I was on house arrest for nine months. And then I turned myself into okay. prison, which is, which is called a self-surrender. Gotcha. So if you do that into a medium security prison, you're looked at as like something's not right mm-hmm. with this person. And then when you give them the elevator pitch of like, well, there's this law called the Animal <laughs> Enterprise Protection Act. And that, you know, if you cross state lines and everyone's like, whatever. And they just walk away. Like no one has the patience. <laughs> so, uh, but believe, but yeah, believable. It got kind of dicey. Like, do people believe you or? Well, it's a law no one's yeah. ever heard of. So it's like you know, immediately people think you're lying, and they think you're either a snitch or a mm-hmm. child molester, and they want to beat the crap out of you, and which is something that happens. Really? Um, so I, yeah, oh yeah. So I kind of had to like redo my story to what are you in for? And I would say I'm in for protesting. And then they'd be like, wait, what? And then they're interested in the whole story. And that's kind of, kind of how I I got my footing. Um, And then I got help from a couple other inmates that were like, something's like, this person is different than, than what normally is in prison. Let's figure out what a story is. And then they kind of, we would walk in the, the rec yard around the dirt track, you know, the dirt path in the, in the, the rec yard for weeks. And they just kind of told me like, this is how you handle yourself as an inmate. This is what's expected of you as an in, inmate culture um, about respect and all these other things and, and what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as like an inmate um, from another inmate's perspective. Um, and they kind of just showed me the ropes and then basically went to these people that were harassing me and were like, hey, this, this kid's fine. Like he's not a child molester. He's not a snitch. Just leave him alone. And they're like, Meh, okay. And they went on to whoever was next to, well, that's to good. kick on. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, it was pretty intense. It was an intense place. I mean, it was a place much like you see in the movies. So there's fights, there's beatings, there's stabbings, there's race riots, there's gang warfare. And you have to figure out how to navigate all that without really getting hurt. Yeah. So it's an intense yeah, experience. I'm sorry that happened to you. Like, it's just crazy. It's crazy how animal activists can end up in yeah. jail with people who have committed violent crimes. Um, I just, it's so hard to wrap my head around it. Yeah, it's complicated. It is. Sure. Now, do you think jail, obviously jail changed you. I can't imagine it not changing you. But did it change any of your thoughts in regarding the movement? Like, you obviously had a ton of time in there to think about it. Um, did you come out feeling any different about it or that there were changes that needed to be made? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that question could be answered in two, two separate yeah. kind of veins. Um, one would be a little bit longer and maybe not worth going down, but I, the movement changed so much in the, the, the several years that I was incarcerated. 
Um, and then it was a completely different movement and a large majority of the people that were active were no longer active anymore. And I think that was predominantly because people were scared yeah. of going to prison. And that's totally fair, like no shame on that whatsoever. Um, and some people moved on to more educational outreach stuff. Some people moved on to, you know, different types of tactics and strategies, but the movement was completely different. So there, there really wasn't a movement that I was used to, to yeah. back to. Um, when I was in prison, um, yeah, I did. I mean, a lot of what I did in prison was trying to keep myself sane and and stick to a schedule or a program that would help me survive mentally. Um, and uh, but yeah, I did. I did think about activism and movement stuff. But I, the thing that always came back to me was I would sit there in in my unit. There's 12 units, and each unit held about 140 people. And I would look at like all the people here and be like, if we are honestly trying to create like a vegan world, quote unquote, vegan world, like these are the people we have to change. Like this is, this is everyday right. America, you know, up until that point, I'd been doing most of my activism and, but particularly all the vegan outreach that I'd ever done was always in like, you know, cities, predominantly liberal cities and, and like how difficult it was to get people to go vegan in like these liberal cities. And now I'm in prison in the desert and there's people from all over the country that are like you know middle america people flyover state people you know people that for whatever reason got caught up in drugs or or gangs or or, or things like that but like this is the mm -hmm. united states like this is the population you know there's millions of people incarcerated in the united states and they are a cross-section i think of who america the united states is and 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 so i spent a lot of time thinking like how do we reach these people on a message of animal liberation? Yeah. Like they're just struggling to survive. And, and then I think a lot of it turned to, can we even do that? Um, and I think that led to me questioning a lot of what we do as an animal rights movement and what is successful and what's not. And then, you know, I got out of prison due to a lot of different other circumstances. You know, I, I got involved in, in different movements and that was really, I think ultimately what changed my view on the yeah. rights movement. Hmm. And what was that exactly? Um, you know, when you're on probation, you can't, it's very, um, you're under a lot of scrutiny, like particularly like a federal probation release mm -hmm. from prison. Like, you know, everything you do is monitored, um, including where you go, who you see, how you, how you get money, where you spend that money. And if you even talk to a police officer, even if that means you were jaywalking or, you know, you got pulled over for speeding, you have to report that to your probation officer. And, and, and the probation officer decides that that's a big enough infraction to send you back to prison. So getting back into like radical animal rights activism, where I had been for the previous, you know, um, was impossible. 10 years was, was, yeah, impossible. So it meant getting involved in other movements and, and other struggles and, and even starting other organizations and other movements. Um, and that was really eye-opening to me. Um, and also starting to meet and hang out with people from those movements um, and meet and hang out with people from, you know, that had been doing activism since the sixties and seventies and learning from them and learning from their experiences and, and starting to realize that like all these liberation struggles are intertwined and, and they, they all have, intrinsic their own intrinsic value and they're all important it's not just about animal liberation like that's like there's so much more going on in the world that's equally mm -hmm. as important and and 
we just can't win one without the other. And in that period of time where I worked in the environmental movement and organized in the climate justice movement and helped start, you know, a, a, a grassroots climate justice group in, in the Bay Area and, you know, being in part of like Black Lives Matter stuff when, when it was appropriate for me to do so and, and um, experiencing all that and, and learning from all those organizers. I think really like made me realize that like, like as an animal rights movement, we focus so much on consumerism and the individual and no other social mm-hmm. justice movement does it. But those other social justice movements are so much more successful than yeah, the animal rights are. movement is. And I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why that is, but I think part of that is, is because there isn't strong moral baselines in, in purity politics that we see in the animal rights movement coming into other movements. You know, you don't see the environmental movement saying like, you can't if you, you can't drink stand a with us. Water bottle, yeah. You don't drive a Prius, or mm-hmm. yeah, you can't be here. Um, you just don't see that, and so it, it, I think the the idea around purity politics and moral baselines, and and the idea of making activists before making individual consumers, um, was the the biggest takeaway for me, and something that I still really hold on to now. Um, you know, and I do still spend time in the environmental movement. That's why I work um, as my, my day job. And um, I have a lot of friends and, and colleagues there that I still learn from and organize with and, and try to bring animal rights and, and climate justice and animal rights and, and, and other human mm-hmm. rights issues together um, as best as I can and learn from them and share it with the, the movement. And that kind of goes back to my YouTube channel is what, you know, what is part of my my thoughts around the channel is to, to get people. Yeah. And I think that's well. super relevant right now with everything that's going on too. Um, yeah, definitely something sure. to think about. Yeah. Yeah. More than ever. Um, I want to ask you actually about your probation. So you're not on probation or anything now you can do and say whatever you please. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. And for you were on probation. F- yeah. To a certain degree. <laughs> For the couple years you were on probation, <laughs> were you not allowed to be involved with anything to do with animal rights or? I, with, with my probation, and I think a lot of probation in the United States is you're not allowed to associate with other people that have mm. essentially broken the law. So, which is incredibly difficult in the United States because, you know, everyone's <laughs> broken the law at some point. But, but, uh, specifically i wasn't allowed to talk to my co-defendants or other like main organizers or, or animal rights people yeah. from the shack campaign um so i didn't you know some of my co-defendants i didn't see or talk to for you know close to wow, 10 years that is so years. sad um yeah but it it also meant that like um you had to be really careful about you know what you did and, and where you were um you know me going to an animal rights demonstration a small animal rights demonstration. I don't know who would bring up flags or not. I don't yeah. know if people were really watching it. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But you just had to be to be careful because once you're on probation, even when you're not on probation anymore, right. you have a record. And at least in the United States, the more you have on your record, the more severe your mm-hmm. next arrest is going to be. So, you know, my arrest record, I think I've been arrested like, I don't know, like, like 10 Holy or 12 crap. times or something like that. And and can yeah and convicted on a handful of things and so you know when we were originally being sentenced um for the shack stuff the prosecution wanted me you know by the prosecution was asking i think for 
11 to 13 years, but originally it was supposed to be nine to 11, but then they said, but he also has these mm. other prior records. He was arrested here, he was arrested here, and therefore it should tack on extra two years to a sentence. And that was like a very mm -hmm. like real situation. You know, I got really lucky that I only got four years. So I was supposed to get. So all the other times you got arrested, you um, actually ended was... up getting charged for those as well. Yeah. Some of them, some of them were dismissed. Some of them, I they see. never went through with the charges. Um, and some of them I was found mm. guilty. But those guilty ones are the ones that get you, you know, and I think we often don't talk about that in the animal rights movement or we don't think about it. But every time you go, you know, and, and the, those prior yeah. arrests were misdemeanors, like, you know, in the United States, we have misdemeanors and felonies. So they weren't even like high level arrests. In fact, one of them is stupidly was for <laughs> shoplifting. So, Stealing more tofu. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you don't have any, you don't have a job because you're yeah. doing activism all the time, you have money to buy yeah. food, so we just steal it all. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I got arrested. It was embarrassing. And, uh, but you know, out of all of them, that was the only like non-activist related arrest. But even that was a small misdemeanor, right? I mean, I got a fine, like a like a hundred dollar fine or something, and like a stay away mm -hmm. order from the store. That was in nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine. Seven years later, they're like, "Well, he got arrested for shoplifting seven years ago, and therefore oh we're going to tack on an extra year to his prison yeah. sentence." Yeah, and the other stuff was protest related, but still, yeah. you know, they don't care if it's an arrest, then it's an arrest. So, you know, when you go in and people do these things, which are great, you know, taking an animal here, taking an animal there, or doing a meet the victims, or or a or a disruption, or a open rescue, all those things are great. But if you get arrested for them, you get put on probation or yeah. pretrial probation, meaning you're on a probation until the court case gets settled. Mm -hmm. That could be years. Um, and on top of that, if you're found guilty, you might get a slap on the wrist. You might get a fine. It might not feel like a big deal. You might get a year, another year of probation where you're out of, you know, the ability to risk yourself for, for a couple of years. But if you get arrested again and again and again, at least in the United States, you know, you're looking three, at four arrests down the road, the judge is going to look at that record is going to be like, you're not learning yeah. your lesson. You know what I mean? Like. And obviously that's not a lesson any of us want to learn because we don't believe in it. But from a judge's perspective, you're not learning your lesson because right. you're a repeat offender and they will punish you for it. And and then you end up, you mm -hmm. know, possibly doing time. And I can tell you, no, doing time is no I mean, problem. I haven't really talked about this on my podcast because I mean, I'm not really allowed to, but I can kind of like say a little bit, but um, I was also arrested and charged mm -hmm. and I'm actually on probation. My, the next time I do something similar, I mean, I'm, I will probably be facing jail time too. And it's really scary and it, it makes people not want to get involved. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I want to ask is like, what advice would you give to someone who like wants to get involved in animal rights, but is scared that a, they could potentially get arrested or go to jail. And I mean, a lot of people are even scared to just stand up and use their platform due to all the backlash they may get. Um, and I know you said you were mm. an introvert and it was kind of hard for you to get involved in the first place, but what would you say to someone who wants to, but is hesitant? Yeah. Um, I think there's two parts, two answers to that, or two yeah. part answer to the question, but I think, the first part is that like, this is like a mm -hmm. struggle. It is a movement and, and therefore like yeah. we do need to take risks. 
it doesn't mean everyone needs to take risks because everyone has different privileges and abilities. Um, but I think people with privileges and abilities, if you're able and willing yeah. to take risks, then you should. And risk doesn't mean you need to go out and do something haphazard or risk or, or um, hazardous or, you know, it, it, there's a difference, I think, between like taking yes. risk and being reckless, right? Um, and so I think we need to have a real conversation about like, okay, if we, if we as organizers are bringing 70 people into a farm to get everyone arrested, is that risky or is it reckless? And no judgment, I'm not saying that right. reckless or, or risky. But is it a good thing strategically to get 70 people arrested and put on probation and potentially mm-hmm. facing jail time? So I think like, and as organizers, it is upon us to make sure that if we are organizing something like this, then we need to make sure everyone understands what they're getting into before they do it. So that means having a conversation with a lawyer, having a lawyer come in and just be like, these yeah. are the potential outcomes. You know, I work in, with an organization that, that we do a lot of direct action in terms of like civil disobedience and banner hangs and things like that. And every time we do it, we have it. We have a lawyer say like, these are all the potential things that could happen to you just so that you are aware before you engage in mm-hmm. them. Like these are the things that could happen. And I think that doesn't happen very much in the animal rights movement. And I think it really should. That being said, there are a wide range of tactics. And I talk about this a lot, but there are so many different tactics that we can all engage in. And a large percentage of them don't, aren't risky behavior, right? Um, we need people to do outreach. We need people to get petition signatures. We need people to hand out literature. We need people to make videos and web pages. We need attorneys. We need accountants. You know, we need people that understand business and finance. Like stuff that you might think are really boring are the things that no one does in the animal rights movement and are critically important in order to run successful campaigns. Um, so I would encourage everyone to think about what they're what they're best at, what, what their skills are, and then use those skills to the best of their abilities, right? It, it, we sensationalize protest on the internet, and I'm mm-hmm. certainly guilty of it as well. Um, but we shouldn't give the impression that the only thing that we can be doing is storming factory farms and locking ourselves to things or taking chickens or running away with animals or smashing this or yelling at people through bullhorns. Like all those things are, are mm-hmm. yes, but they are yes and. Like yes and we also need people to do leafleting and people to do tables and people to do research and undercover investigations. All these different puzzle pieces need to fit together mm-hmm. to make a bigger picture. And if we only show up with one or two puzzle pieces, we'll never finish the puzzle. Um, and, I, and I often say a tactic right. is a puzzle piece. And I think it's something we confuse a lot in the animal rights movement, the difference between a tactic and a strategy. And to go full circle <laughs> on our conversation, uh, yeah. Veganuary is looked at as a strategy right. to, a, to an end goal, but it's not. It's an outreach campaign, which is a tactic. And we need outreach critically. It's very important. But outreach alone will never achieve the things mm-hmm. we need and want to achieve as animal rights activists. The same way just protests won't achieve it. The same way just direct action won't, won't achieve it. We have to use yeah. all the pieces together. And I think when we do that, we are quite successful. There's a lot of like history in our movement that shows that it works. And there's an enormous amount of history in other movements that show this works. And that's why other movements do it all the time. But we just don't do it. We focus on one or two tactics and pass them off the strategies. Um, and, and ultimately, I think mm-hmm. we end up losing in the long run. Yeah, and I mean, things keep happening like more and more. Well, in Canada specifically, egg-egg laws are being introduced. And I actually want to go back to something in the States when... Mm-hmm. 
that happened to you, was that considered an egg egg law or is that separate? Um, if I remember correctly, egg egg laws either weren't a thing then or they had gotcha. not really started um, to take off. Um, we There was undercover investigations into the laboratory and that helped us a lot mm-hmm. in terms of educational outreach. Um, but we didn't participate or do any of those uh, yeah. undercover investigations. Um, and we never really went into the laboratory of, you know, Huntington Life Sciences. We protested outside of the laboratory and we always got permits and so forth and so on. Um, so we never really engaged in, in actual, like, violations that would have right. occurred under an ag. And I don't law. know if this is true or not, but it just feels this way. I feel as though... It- Things like that were more successful back then, like shutting down facilities happen more often than they're happening now. Do you think that's true? Do you think the movement has changed mm-hmm. in a way that maybe it's not as successful anymore? Yeah. Absolutely. Why do you think that yeah, is? for sure. Um, and I don't think it's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I have my cranky. I have my cranky vegan answer <laughs> where I get really cranky, or I can I'll be take a, a combination. Positive. Um, okay, I think I think um, I think we focus a lot on outreach, mm-hmm. and this is going to sound really terrible, but I think we focus yep. on outreach because it's easy. I don't think we focus. We've convinced ourselves that it works, and that's totally fine because mm-hmm. I do think it's important. But I don't, I think we've convinced ourselves that it's important. The whole planting seeds notion. And I think the animal rights movement. Right. We can, we can come up with all sorts of this, this means this, and we've created this many vegans and so forth and so on. But, but the, at the end of the day, the, the, the interesting thing about the animal rights movement is, is that it Mm -hmm. does not benefit us at all. It doesn't matter if we win. It doesn't matter if we lose in terms of humans, right? Obviously it matters to the billions and billions of animals killed every year. But if the Black Lives Matter movement fails, Black people continue to be murdered by the police. If Indigenous youth struggles fail, Indigenous communities will continue to be oppressed by the government and by oil companies. Um, you know, if the environmental movement fails, you know, we lose big time in terms of, you know, climate justice and, and frontline communities that are that will disappear because of climate change. And and yes, there are like broader like you know heady conversations about with the animal rights movement loses then yes humans lose that's true but more specifically like we don't lose anything if if we lose the animal rights movement if we don't make 100 vegans today we still get to go home mm-hmm. and sleep in our beds comfortably at night you know it, and and so there's no real reason for us to risk anything because it's our activism is comfortable outreach is very comfortable it's uncomfortable because some of us don't like doing it and it's hard to, you know, have those conversations, but in a strategic broader sense, like outreach is, is mm-hmm. a easy ask. Like it's an easy thing. It doesn't mm-hmm. require any risk. And when you combine that with the ability to make money off of it and to be successful financially, as we see a lot of like vegan influencers, <laughs> quote unquote influencers do, you know, like yeah. what is the impetus to change? What is the impetus to take a risk? And, and don't get me wrong, like I'm pro people making money. I'm, I think the more people that can get yeah. paid to do activism, the better. But when people are making 80, 90, $100,000 to run an Instagram account where they talk about veganism every once in a while is yeah. bonkers to me. Um, but what's, they're seen as leaders and they are seen as people that are like spearheading this movement. 
but they're not doing anything right. to really make change in my opinion. And no hate on them. Like I'm happy to sit down and have a conversation with any one of those folks and, and talk strategies and tactics. And I could be totally mm-hmm. wrong and they could be totally right, open to that. But what's the impetus to change if your activism is is relatively easy, no risk, and you make a boatload of true. money off of it? There isn't. There isn't. There isn't a risk. There mm-hmm. isn't a need to change. And and I think that's why we 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 stick to yeah. to outreach. I'm trying to remember <laughs> what my positive point was to this. But like there was to... none. <laughs> oh, I think I think <laughs> I do think history is is cyclical. Like we we come around, and I definitely see that it's coming around to to a point where it was when I first got okay. involved in the '90s where I think I got involved in a point where I did loads of educational outreach. I did hundreds yeah. and hundreds of outreach events. I did, uh, me and my friends probably did three or four outreach and events. And what do you, street activism if, if anyone's listening, they don't know years. what you mean by that. Can you explain what you mean by doing outreach? Sure. We would set up tables. Yeah. It's much like what we see today and with anonymous for the voiceless and so forth and so on. It was just different because mm-hmm. it was not in the mid nineties, but we'd set up tables. We'd have loads of literature about different animal issues We'd have a uh, TV, mm-hmm. is much bigger TV, so it was <laughs> the 90s, <laughs> and a, VC- oh my a VCR. There's no putting this stuff on. That's dedication. Back then, you'd have to carry a VCR around. Yeah. You hook it up to a, yeah, wow. you have to hook it up to a car battery. <laughs> it was a pain in the ass. Um, but you'd show videos, and then you'd have conversations with people. And sometimes that was at concerts or festivals or events, or it was just yeah. setting up on a street corner in a city and doing it. Um, but. I think at that point when I got involved, those first couple of years of doing outreach, at least for me, I got really, um, I don't know, I just got, I just started looking at it and be like, what are we doing? What are we achieving? I just couldn't figure out what we were doing that was making any difference. And realizing that like, oh, we, we really need to start putting pressure on individual places to shut them down. And that really took off in the mid nineties against the fur industry. And people were shutting down fur farms. People were shutting down fur stores. Um, but it wasn't very like it wasn't focused like hyper focused on on bigger places, and that didn't really happen until the Shack campaign in 2000, well 99 in England and 2001 in the United States, where it really took off. 18 different countries around the world all focusing mm-hmm. on shutting this one lab down. Um, and so what I see in the animal rights movement now is I see people being fed up again with just handing out literature or taking orders from a couple people in these outreach organizations saying, you have to do it my way or else you're out. Um, and I think people are getting fed up with it. And I, I think there's a push to do more interesting activism, be more creative in our activism and really start to focus it more on uh, corporations and industries and, and hopefully starting to shift sectors. And so my hope is if, if history really does repeat itself that we are kind of in that arc of the circle where we start moving from these you know, random, campaigns here and there which are great but maybe moving into something bigger and yeah. broader that we can work on as a movement instead of as so do you think pressure campaigns are probably one of the most successful ways to create change then yeah i do yeah for sure <clears throat> um I, I think pressure campaigns, when I talk a lot about shack and so I think people confuse pressure campaigns with radical, you know, uh, people running through the streets <laughs> and causing problems, which I'm all for. Don't get me wrong. But I like there has to be a multiple, a multitude of tactics. And a lot of campaigns are not radical and in your face all the time, um, but it uses a variety of tactics, strategic tactics that will work. And that includes outreach. That includes 
literature or on uh, petitions. It includes emails and telephone calls and protests and sometimes civil disobedience and sometimes direct action. But when it's all used smartly against the same targets, then you start seeing change. And we've seen it happen in, in ways in the United States uh, and in the animal rights movement around the world. We're seeing it now with the fur industry, people getting bans against the um, fur farms and fox farms and mink farms. Um, you see groups like Animal Rights Alliance in Sweden doing really smart campaigning uh, and pressure campaigns and winning them. You see um, direct action, uh, direct animal action in New Zealand doing smart pressure campaigns and winning. Um, you see um, um, sanctuaries like Hofnar in, in uh, Switzerland that are doing smart um, activism to transform animal ag farms into plant-based farms. And they've created like something between 20 and 60 uh, farms. That's to, amazing. To from animal to plant-based uh, in just a few, yeah, in just a few years. Um, you know, you see the local, you know, the most recent um, group in California, the Animal Defense League Southern California doing a campaign against this big fur retailer or fur or designer that used fur. They wow. got her to drop fur within two weeks. Like, uh, like yeah. this this works. And then people are always like, well, these are tiny, tiny baby steps. steps. But the reality is like, yeah. you're never going to, they are steps exactly. And they're based in liberation. Um, and they, um, you have to take steps. Even if you're only doing vegan outreach, you're going to have to take steps, but we get to decide what those steps look mm -hmm. like. And I think that's important. How would, like, how would someone even go about starting uh, a pressure campaign? Um, yeah, I think, I think real, like, generally speaking, not to be self-promotional, but I do have a, a video series on the YouTube <laughs> channel called <laughs> Are We Winning? Uh, and I would encourage people to watch season three, which is like nine videos. <laughs> Some are a little more cranky than others, but there are a handful of videos in there that are very specific about like, this is, this is how other organizations and movements make okay. change and the animal rights movement can do it too. Um, but generally speaking, I think we need to pick our targets strategically. I think we have to recognize what our capabilities are. Like we can't shut down uh, Tyson or we can't shut down Cargill tomorrow. Like we just don't have the numbers or frankly, the experience to do it. You have to build up to it. And so I think building smart strategic campaigns in your local communities is really a, a good idea. Maybe that's picking something that is easy to get people involved in. A lot of people love dogs. A lot of people love cats, elephants, dolphins. Um, and, and thinking about how you can form a campaign where a lot of people want to get involved. And maybe it's a campaign that not even, you know, people that aren't That's kind of how you reel them in. in. You know, <laughs> I, I, a, yeah, I'm a firm believer that, like, if we make vegans, we don't make animal rights activists. But I think if we make animal mm -hmm. rights activists, we eventually make vegans. Um, and I, I've seen that in my own activism, like with the Shack campaign. We didn't care if you're a vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore. If you wanted those cats and dogs out of the cages, then fight with us. And over time, you could start having those conversations. Well, those cats and dogs are the same as the chickens and the cows and the pigs in the cages. There's just, you know, it's the a same, little different, yeah. but it's pretty much the same. And then they start making the connection. And then, you know, veganism yeah. comes down the line, hopefully. Um, so I think picking like smart, maybe small strategic campaigns in your local communities and building those up. Um, and, and making sure they're winnable because people like to win. And I think the more you win, the more people will get on board and um, you start building that momentum and then you can start building up to bigger and bigger targets. Um, and I think realizing that like a diversity of, 
of smart strategic tactics is really important. You can't just do one or two things. And I think recognizing um, that what we're trying to pull down, whether it's a small little fur boutique or a big factory farm, they all rely on a variety of different things to exist. So I, you know, we talk about it as like pillars of support, you know, and we can look at the lab as an example. A lab needs insurance. They need banks. They need uh, stock makers, stock brokers. They need shareholders. They need a board of directors. Those mm-hmm. are all different pillars that hold up this building. And if we only take one pillar out or two pillars out, all the other pillars hold it up. And so we need to, we need to do campaigns that pull at all the different pull, pull in a, bar, a bunch of different directions. I know you said your video um, yeah. about the pressure campaigns is called, are we winning? Um, and that was one of the questions I wanted yeah. to kind of talk to you about, because as much as we want to think we're winning, we're, if you look at the statistics, I mean, we're not winning the animals, more and more animals are being killed every year. And yeah. I'm sure there's multiple reasons. And for me, I personally think population, increasing population is a huge factor behind that. But um, I'm really not an expert on it. Yeah. I don't think population is the only reason. I think, I think the reality is like we have, you know, our population mm-hmm. continues to increase at quite a rate. I think there's a lot of studies that indicate that if managed correctly, we would have enough resources for everyone to survive and live. Um, but, you know, first world nations gobble up those resources right. at, at an alarming rate as well. Um, so I'm not sure it's simple as like, well, there's just too many people. I think it's that the the wealthy few of, of the, you know, of the world they monopolize the resources part of my my ableist language um but they they mop they monopolize those resources right and so i think you know when we start talking we hear a lot about population the animal rights movement and and you know it's it's a slippery slope as in terms of like how you know particularly some of the language coming from some vegans about how we prevent people from not, you know, I've seen a, seen a lot of that. In the incredibly last problematic. I don't know if you've noticed that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I try to try to avoid it. Um, but it's incredibly problematic. And I would encourage people to think a little bit about before talking about <laughs> yeah. like sterilization. Um, but anyways, um, I, I think, I think we live in a world that, um, makes money off, it, it wants to make as much money as easily as you can. And I think the animal ag industry, the vivisection industry, the animal for entertainment industries, like fur industries, they're set up for, for people to make a, a bunch of money off of it. So what's, what's their impetus to change? Um, you know, we have this idea in our head as animal rights activists that if we just focus on the demand and get enough people to change, then those systems will collapse. And it's just mm-hmm. not true. It's just unfortunately not true. Unless we're getting 40, 50, 60% of the population to change, you're not going to see yeah. a change that, that we want. And even if you start to get that change, a number of things come into play. Statistically, most people don't stay vegan longer than a year. You spend all this time creating these vegans that only are going to stay vegan for a year. Um, on top of that, you have... Um, you have bailouts and subsidies, you know, in a lot of countries around the world as these industries start to fail, whether it's from demand, which hasn't been the case, but from pandemics like COVID, 
um, or swine flu or avian flu or um, natural disasters where like, you know, whole swaths of farmlands have been destroyed. The government steps in and pays for all that stuff. They pay these farmers to create food that they literally store. Yeah, they store them in warehouses and then throw them away. So you could reduce the number of animals being eaten or the secretions being drink, 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 yeah. drunk, <laughs> drink, drunk, whatever. <laughs> we'll ride with it. Um, but unless you're you're downplaying that by, you know, huge amounts, you're just not going to see the change. Yeah, I guess the question is, how do we stop out. that from happening? Um, so to me, yeah, I think there's a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. I think groups like Liberation 360 or um, Animal Agricultural, uh, Animal Agricultural Fairness Alliance. I know that's not the name, but it's close. It used to be called Vegan Justin League, um, but they changed it to Liberation 360. But anyways, there's a couple of groups that are working on going after subsidies, which I think is a really smart plan. I don't think it's the the magic, you know, key to end it, to end it. But I think it's a really important thing to fight mm-hmm. against and, and a really good strategy. Um, but I also think like we need to start dismantling these systems and of oppression. We need to dismantle the corporations. We need to dismantle the industries. Um, it's going to be much harder to do when it comes to animal agriculture, but we just don't have the numbers and the ability and, and the, frankly, the experience to do that. And I think we need to be realistic about that, which is yeah. incredible. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm more of like a fight the government than lobby the government type of person. But <laughs> But I do think the lobbyists, you know, that again, yeah. Connie Spence and her organizations are doing is smart. I, I don't I don't know the, the, the fine details of it. She's much more versed in mm-hmm. that than I am, obviously. So I would encourage people to go check that out. But um, but again, I think it's a diversity of tactics and strategies. Like as much as going after subsidies and bailouts, I think is great. It's not going to be the, the silver bullet to yeah. fix these problems. Full stop. I think it's a great a great push forward for sure. But I think it has to be coupled with other things, including pressure campaigns. Um, and, and we can see that in places, you know, you look at places like Sweden going against the fur industry there and how successful they've been in shutting down chinchilla farming mm-hmm. and fox farming. And now they moved on to mink farming. Um, you see that like in the push against in the United States. Horrible. Foie gras. Like foie gras is, is horrible, mm-hmm. but it's, it's barely hanging on at this point. It's still around. Same with circuses, but but if we're going to be honest with ourselves, like if we can't stop a handful of circuses in the United States, yeah. how are we going to stop the world's largest corporations from killing literally millions of birds a minute? Like, and I think that's where the conversation about like, hey, we need to be realistic about what we're doing. People don't want to have a conversation about longevity. You know, maybe we're not organizing our movement to win right now. We're organizing. Yeah, this instant gratification generation. notion might be a little bit um mm-hmm. present with the movement right now um and yeah. then people kind of give up when they don't see results sure. um yeah i think that's the biggest reason yeah. animal rights activists and i mean it's it's rights. so it's so hard being an activist too i mean i know so many activists who are so burnt out mentally and i find that um it almost becomes addicting for a lot of people like going into factory farms. Like it does something to you. Heartbreaking is obviously an understatement and it's really hard to go home and not Mm -hmm. think about anything else or not think about those animals who are stuck there. And like, how do you go on with life knowing that? How do you look at people who are supporting them, supporting these or supporting these industries in a non hateful manner? Um, 
and I'm assuming you've seen a lot of shit, but you do seem positive. Um, and you, <laughs> I mean, you seem hopeful and motivated to keep fighting. Um, and I guess, I guess what I want to yeah. ask is like, what systems and structures do you have in place to like keep your chin up and keep fighting? Because I know a lot of people who are giving up um, and don't know how to go on with their day-to-day routine anymore because yeah. of everything that they've seen. And to be honest, I'm like that sometimes too. So um, yeah, I'm curious to know. Totally. Um, I think it's, it's really tough, like building, building yourself and your activism to last. Like we inflict yeah. so much trauma on ourselves as animal rights activists. And then we put so much pressure on each other not to give up and not to do this and not to do that. You have to do this. You have to watch. I mean, there's a thing right now that's like, force yourself to watch Dominion, the ten of Oh, friends. man. God, what are the, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I'm not doing that either. No, I'm not. <laughs> no. Like, I understand that. Yeah. Like, I understand the, the desire to, to, to get people to look at undercover footage. I understand why Save does what it does. Um, I'm not sure, like, the, that model, though, promotes longevity. Um, and I think finding the balance in that is really important. Um, like, yeah, if you want to bear witness and you can do it for 10 years, go for it. Like, don't let me stop you. But if you can bear witness twice and then you don't feel like mm-hmm. you can do it anymore, there's no shame in not doing it anymore. There's so much work that can be done in the animal rights movement um, that you don't need to, like, traumatize in yeah. yourself to the point of burnout and giving up. Like, self-care is a radical act. It's critically important to take care of yourself. And we look down on it so much as like, oh, you're giving up. You're, you're not too happy. You're, <laughs> you're not vegan. You're this, you're <laughs> yeah, you're too happy. Like, you know, it, it's, and we have p- leaders of organ of these grassroots organizations saying things like, you don't deserve self-care. Like only people like, you know, these le- like leaders like us deserve self-care. And that's just such nonsense and garbage. Um, being able to figure out like, how to take care of yourself is really important and i think what all activists mm-hmm. should be doing like you should have a hobby do something fun even if you can only do it something completely TV, different book, draw, yeah. make a nice dinner go for a walk outside yeah it's totally fine to detach yourself every once in a while and by every once in a while that could be once or twice a day or once or twice a week monthly or whatever but i i think I think we have to, like I said earlier, I think we need to recognize what we're good at and do it to the best of our abilities. We yeah. shouldn't do things because we feel like we're supposed to. I think there's a lot, a big push that like, if you are in save, you need to be bearing witness. If you're in direct action everywhere, you need to be doing open rescues or, or disruptions. If you're AV, you have to be doing outreach with these specific things and these specific yeah. tools. You don't, I promise you. <laughs> like There are people doing all of these things and we can all add to them or start our own thing in order to like incorporate and, yeah, and ro- rotate through um, the tasks and special talents and, and, and yeah. abilities for sure. You know, um, I do think that like, it's like the other thing that kind of gives me a bit of hope is that we have amazing people doing amazing things in the animal rights movement. You know, we have amazing people doing um, disruptions and open rescues with DXC. We have amazing people bearing witness and gumming up the works at distribution centers and slaughterhouses with SAVE. We have amazing people doing outreach uh, with Anonymous for the voiceless. We have amazing people doing things like meet the victims with farm disruptions and lockdowns and things like that. 
but it's not getting us where we're going because we're not all working together on, on the specific campaigns. And so my hope and my vision is that you already have all these tactics. We have all these resources that's pooling together, even if it's in your local community. Like if direct action everywhere, if your local DXC chapter was, you know, um, doing open rescues against one particular farm or one particular company and being able to tie it back to that same company that a save chapter was doing vigils and disruptions at, um, at their processing facilities at the same time anonymous for the voiceless or whatever outreach you were doing was, you know, outreaching specifically with that undercover footage about that specific corporation in front of that specific corporation's headquarters or stores. Um, while people like Meet the Victims folks are doing disruptions or lockdowns inside of boardrooms or things like that. You have, we have all these tactics and abilities that we're already doing. But if we start concentrating them on one target or a couple targets, and even just locally, like, man, like you could really start changing mm -hmm. industries and sectors really quickly. Week, well, fine. thanks, Jake. I know you do a lot of um, speaking events and stuff, but obviously with the current world situation, that's probably not possible. But do you have any other like virtual speaking events coming up or? Um, I'm doing a few things okay. with um, the Raven Corp, Corps, Corp. Um, I'm not sure what the um, sign up information or registration is it's just for the organization or not. But uh, they're a great organization, and I've been doing. Uh, I have a couple speaking things with them coming up, um, and I'm always happy to do talks about pressure campaigns. I'm always happy to um, get on the phone with some folks and awesome. want to toss around campaign ideas. I'm happy to talk. I'm on YouTube, <laughs> unfortunately, as the cranky vegan, <laughs> the cranky <laughs> vegan on there, uh, irritating everyone. It's kind of fun, I guess. Um, also on Instagram as the cranky vegan, Facebook the cranky vegan. Again, my name is Claire. Thank you so much. Hit subscribe and do not forget to follow us at Living Cruelty Free with me on Instagram and Facebook for upcoming episodes.